Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the third episode of our Collecting Addicts podcast. I'm here today again with Edward Lovett, Chris Cooper, Neil Clifford and Manish Pandey and we have a motley collection of subjects to discuss that might or might not be of interest to you. We're going to start off with perhaps the ultimate geek conversation, manual gear shifts. We're not talking about whether they should exist or not, we're talking about what are our favourites. Yes, five grown men discussing what their favourite gear shifts are. This is, in many ways, pornographic. Over to you, Neil Clifford. Well, I've thought hard about this, obviously. Um, <laughs> I think it has to be Japanese. Mm. I think it has to be Japanese. This is from a country that it's normal to take five years to make a chopstick in Kyoto. <laughs> You know, the, these guys are end, engineering geniuses. And I think whether you go Mazda MX-5 Mark One or Honda Integra, which I haven't owned, actually. Um, so I, if it's something that I've owned, it would be a Honda S2000. Oh, That's interesting. It's such a good one. the underrated car of the universe. Yeah. It's just the best bit of that car, though. Engine aside. It's the engine. Yeah. yeah, it's the B-Tech Handling engine. left home. But Sorry, yeah. Chris, did you just say that's the best bit about that car, engine aside? Well, the handling left home a long time ago, didn't it? I mean, really. I'll, I'll tell you a story about the S2000. When it was launched, um, as people know, many people that are geeks know, the car was updated during its life. The first car was a bit spiky. I think the diff was very aggressive. So they, Honda gave out five very early production cars to the to all the car magazines, the major car magazines in the UK. I think Autocar got one, Car, Evo, Auto Express, and someone else got one. I was I was informed that after four weeks, four of them were no longer cars. Mm-hmm. They all got they all got binned. The Autocar one yep. definitely got got binned. It was thrown through a picket fence, I think. Um, super spiky, but the gear change was, was 
oh, it's just so mechanical. I suppose yep. for me, a great gear change is defined by the fact that I always feel like my hand is inside the gearbox moving the selector forks. It's that connection. And the moment yep. you've got any slack in it, that's why something like an Elise gear change is always quite disappointing because it's got this cable and it's some movement. But you're right. And it also presents a terrible problem for the motoring journalist, which how do you describe that? Because as a child, all you've read is Steve Cropley calling it a rifle bolt gear. A change. rifle bolt. A and rifle. you're like there going, I've got to find another phrase for this. Yeah. I've got to find another phrase for this. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I'm, I'm, Neil, I'm, where is the um, fuel uh, filler release button on an S2000? Oh, uh, I think I think was it not to the right of the seat, the little lever thing? Well, I I, dr I have driven one once, and my st I didn't have a chance to really use the gear shift correctly because I it it just come in chop at Down Dick Love at <laughs> Bristol, and um, I drove it home and needed some petrol. To which I spent an hour at the fuel station trying to find I think you're right. the I think, button. I do, I do remember. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find, find the button, so mm. I just had to nurse at home so slowly just to make sure I could get it back is it to not the dealership in the, the next day. Is it day. that armrest flap? It's in that armrest flap, isn't it? Where you lift what? up the armrest and it's in there. It could be. You know, actually, the Japanese not only do the best gear changes, but they do the best gear knobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. But little, I think the MX5 coldness. Oh, oh yeah. NSX Type R. Yeah. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. Sorry, Mr. Yeah. Cooper, go ahead. You were going to so tell, tell us about I was your wondering. gear change experience. Yeah, I was wondering whether I could admit to Mark 1 MX5. Oh, yeah, you I can. Yeah. Really, oh, you really can, cool. Yeah. And I think, it, I think in part, the first time I ever drove one, I, I was working in Edinburgh. And a colleague of mine, this must have been quite early on when they arrived, and a colleague of mine had one, and she was away for the weekend and said, why don't you borrow my car? I mean, what was she thinking of? Uh, so I drove it across the fourth bridge up through Persia towards Knock Hill Circuit and all the lovely roads around there. And I thought that gear shift is so mechanical and lovely. Um, every time I spun it, it was really easy to get it into reverse. <laughs> I quite like that about it. God, that was a really spinny car. The other gearbox... That I think is like that was the six-speed gearbox that Caterham developed mm. for their road cars for the K-series engine in the 90s. Mm. Now, Chris, you know that I'm crippled by modesty, so I don't like talking about my motor racing victories. But every race I ever won in the Caterham with that gearbox. No, we need to talk about this, Chris. It's really important. <laughs> every race I won with that gearbox in it, I thought, God, that's a nice gearbox. Mm. I learned to flat shift in a manual gearbox in that car in a race. What? Oh, he's finished. Sorry, he's finished. No um, right, so um, uh, I, I totally agree. That gearbox was fantastic, and Cooper was irritatingly fast in a cage, but that's a whole other podcast with him on his own. Now, uh, Manish, what about you? Um, when I was 21, I got a green card for my birthday because my father was a doctor in America. So I was one? allowed... Yeah, well, I was allowed to go and get any job I wanted... And uh, the local Mitsubishi dealership mm. needed a new and used car salesman for three months, my long summer holiday. Just finished my preclinical. So I sold new Mitsubishis. Mm. And this is 1989. And the Mitsubishi Starion oh. had come out. <laughs> Remember the Starion? Oh, I love that. The arches. Yeah, oh, arches, lots of, I mean, basically not too many curves apart from the arches. But and the story God. of the naming, the story of the naming, which is true. Uh, it, it, it's complete, the Starion. 
Exactly. And uh, my God, though, that car had a fantastic gearbox. I remember I got this guy, he said he was comparing that to the Toyota Supra, because that was obviously a Toyota, everybody's buying the Supra, but he drove, he drove this and I said, just wait till you change gear in this car. And he drove this car and he came back to the dealership. He said, you're absolutely right about this car. It drives better than Supra. The gearbox is better than the Supra. It's a fantastic car. I'm going to go and buy the Supra. Which does beg the question, could you buy a car based on its gear shift? Because I reckon when I was younger, I could have done it because it's it's such an important part of the driving experience. You're more interactive with that lever than you are anything else. You could argue. I know you've got steering inputs, but they're very shiny. A great you definitely could be put. You definitely could be put off it. I remember when I first drove. I had an order in when the Elise first arrived, ninety six. Yeah, and it, oh, it's just wonderful. And I drove it, and that horrible cable operated. That alone put me off. I couldn't get it. I just thought I can't. I'll never get around that. It's such a horrible, mushy, horrible thing. So it, it definitely can put you off. Lord Edward of Love it. What have you crashed with a good make, a manual gearbox? Oh. Uh, PDK, quite like that. It's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> good I, I was I was trying to think of something um, that that was different, and you'll you'll totally disagree with this. But I used an Audi R8 V8 manual to do a That's road nice. tour around mm-hmm. yeah. France, and I did two and a half thousand miles in a week, and that gearbox with that engine where you can use all the revs yeah so sweet i I look back and thinking i'm not sure i've had a better driving experience and and it was made up with the with the gearbox because i did the same trip in a in a touchtronic or whatever they call it and v10 a year later which was a a very different experience yeah yeah that's a good that's actually that's the ultimate control the same trip with two different gearboxes, that confirms it. That's almost yeah. scientific from you, Edward. Well done. Thank you right. very much. I've got my little list here, and I'll run through them quickly because I think we've really we've we've worked out whether we're going to handle gearbox chat or not. Um, I've got original Ford Puma that had a gear change like I couldn't believe. The rest of the car, I just mm. thought that's a Fiesta. I remember the first time someone handed me the keys at Autocar Magazine, and I went, "I get it now. This, this is one of the best gear changes." And also, the person that developed this gear change was obsessive. You only reach this level of excellence if you're obsessed with what you're doing. NSX, uh, here's one, 993RS. The gear shift in that mm. car is so different to a normal 993, bringing it back to the people here, because obviously it's a really common car. Um, 205XS, that Peugeot mm. 205 gearbox, just a little, like a little Swiss watch of a gearbox. But I tell you, the, the single finest feeling for me in terms of changing gear, and this, this makes me a man of the people again, is third to fourth in a Ferrari F50. There you go. That's a bit niche. That's how much I've lost my shit. Um, I've (laughs) also got Impreza WRC. Anything that's got a dog box with an H pattern in it, for me, sensational. But I I think there's something romantic about a manual gear shift. And the way I'd like to end this is, I think there's one trick that all these electric car makers are missing at the moment. You can make a manual gearbox to work with an electric car. It would be nothing but nothing more than something to do because you don't need it because you've got torque. But you could, you could, and I think someone will soon make a more enthusiastic car by giving it a manual gearbox. Why hasn't someone made a lighter electric car that's got a lever and you could just limit the torque? You could just calibrate the torque in different gears, give it three pedals, and you've got something to do, haven't you? It's the most important thing of a car. Yeah, gearbox. 
Yeah. It's like watching table tennis or playing table tennis. What are you going to choose? <laughs> Being a man of the people, Chris, this, this new Koenigsegg CC8R, they've got this six-speed manual gearbox that then slots over straight into an automatic. That's I've not really experienced easy. it because I don't think Christian... Well, Christian might be willing to let me near one of his cars soon, but it's been a while. Um, I, I love the idea. I just think it's... I don't understand why certain enthusiast car makers that are based in Maranello in Italy don't offer a very expensive car with a manual gearbox. If they announced a car that had no hybridity, had mm. 600 horsepower, weighed 950 kilograms, mm. had a load of carbon, looked great, and just had a greatly gated area by the, by the driver's knee... I think it would be the it would be the most overs vehicle of the next five years, wouldn't it? However, what, however, you wrong? started this on what is the best manual gearbox yeah. to drive, and and we talked the other day about five nine nine GTB manual, which is an extremely expensive car, and they've achieved upwards of a million dollars, yet they're utter rubbish. Pointing, <laughs> I, I I think there's something about precisely why an EV goes the way it does because it doesn't have it's completely linear and i think that linear quality is absolutely all a part of it. So i just you know taycan's got this two-speed gearbox you don't really feel it no i think that i'm not sure i agree i think the ev the whole point about good evs is the linear thing well, i'm talking about if you were, if you were to, if, if you're told that you can only use an electric power plant in 10, 10 years' time, then then I think someone has yeah, to have different. a go yeah, of making but, but, a, a light. But then anyhow. we're not going to be, are we? Because despite all the scaremongering, <laughs> in my this today, despite all the scaremongering, there is there is a future for internal combustion engines. There's going right. to be one Moving way on. on. Thank you very much, dear <laughs> audience, for uh, basically allowing us to talk about Belgium. gear shifts. Um, and I love the fact the MX-5 comes out of that so well, because I'm I, not a great fan I'm, of the I was going to be embarrassed. I'm really pleased. No, 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 there's no need to be embarrassed here. Just look at Edward's hair. Now, um, here we go. At Formula One. Got to have a bit of Formula One chat. So we've had, we've had two things of note this week. Um, first of all, there's been this talk about the valuation of Formula One's business. And I'll step back here because I, I actually can't run my own personal finances, let alone a business. Um, and then on the back of that, I want to talk about this, this rumour that's apparently more than rumour about, about Red Bull and a particular car maker so over to manage about some of the utterances about the value of formula one why it matters and the way we view it as a business so i a lot of media reporting that um formula one was sold to liberty media in 2016-17 for 4.4 billion it was actually sold for 8.4 billion because the 4.4 billion came with four billion worth of debt so we're not saying that the value of the sport has um, quadrupled, but they are arguing that the value of the sport has doubled. And I think if you look at F Wonk, which are the shares in Formula One, it would bear that out. It, you know, it's about 16 billions worth of, um, of market out there. And I think the, the, the bottom line is this, you know, you, stuff is worth, it's that old cliche, what people are prepared to pay for it. And um, I don't think there's any doubt that there is a bit of a resurgence in Formula One. I think the demographic mm. people are talking about is younger. So it's all these big growth, growth, growth things. And um, I guess it's worth that kind of money if you're thinking about selling it. And my sense is that Liberty are not thinking about selling it. They are, I, I, 
I think that that big last market to conquer was always America. And I think there was always something kind of European and and South American, mm. and then maybe a little bit Southeast Asian, a little bit more Middle Eastern about Formula One. I mean, that's kind of the way it's gone. And I think if Liberty really do manage to crack America properly, I mean, the, the, the viewing figures on TV are still just over a million a race. I think they did double that for Miami. So this isn't sort of, you know, breathing down the neck of American football yet. But I think if they do manage to crack America, and by that, I mean, if they can double those audience figures or treble those audience figures, still relatively um, modest by American standards, then I think, why not? Why wouldn't it be worth that kind of money? Why wouldn't it be? Or more? Do you think the fear is where the money comes from? Well, sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry, I was just saying, do, do you think there's some context of where the money comes from? Or ultimately, when we get to these numbers, we're talking about sovereign funds here. We're not talking well, okay, about... So, so the spin on that is we're just not living in a zero interest rate world anymore. So, you know, there we've gone through a period, basically a decade, where you can go and borrow as much money as you like for barely any extra money. So you can be very speculative. And you're quite right. When you're going around borrowing $8 billion, um, you know, a few years ago, when interest rates are 0.5%, or you're trying to borrow 16 billion, if you're a corporation right now, three or 4%, you're absolutely right. The, the, the kind of number of buyers out there rapidly diminishes, doesn't it? And the point you're making is, is there a Middle Eastern buyer who doesn't really need to borrow this money, but who has this money or a Norwegian fund, you know, with this money in the bank? And you're absolutely right. Who can afford 16 billion bucks right now or 20 billion bucks or whatever. And I think that list is tiny. You're exactly It's, it's right. interesting how the Liberty period has changed so much. I can remember when Drive to Survive was first arriving. There were a lot of people in Formula One. I remember Toto in particular and Bonotto probably as well were initially quite dismissive of it. said, well, no, it's too superficial. It's not for us. We're not going to get really involved in it. But now their view must be completely changed, not least because of the equity value of their own businesses has transformed so much. Mm. So um, that has changed people's view of, you know, William sold for, what did Doralton pay? By, you know, all accounts. 140, I think. Yeah. 140, 50 million. And now every time you see Stefano talking in public, Stefano Domenicali talking in public, he just, just you know, it's clearly it's five, 600 million or more. So Netflix has done a huge amount and as you say, I've only just really started. Miami was extraordinary. Those who I knew that were there all talked about it's unbelievable. Vegas this year, they spent 250 million on some bit of real estate on the strip for that. It's um, you know, who knows what it's spend worth. The same again, developing the actual circuits. They're gonna yeah. spend half a billion. I, mean, I think the thing about Bernie was he just he wasn't given that money to develop it. And I think that yeah. is the thing about Liberty Media. They are a media business and they will invest big money in something that they see a more long-term return. I, I think for us as fans and the thing, if we're thinking purely as fans, we love the spectacle of those races. Silverstone always seems to work for F1 cars. It just, whether it's wet or dry, Silverstone just produces amazing races. The first lap in 21, which we only saw half of, the whole race could have been like that. Valtteri and Lewis a few years before that, Sebastian and Alonso it just always produces great spas the same and you know us as fans we would say if there if it comes with the price which means that only promoters like the Saudis so they're whatever they're paying 100 million a year for that race the BRDC 
that Silverson probably can't afford that. The Wallonian government or local authority who's promoting SPA probably can't afford that. So we, you know, we we kind of want to see Monza, SPA, Silverstone, and the race is there. It's part of what makes it. So one hopes that that's somewhere in the mix. But yeah, it's... No, that's a very fair point. And I think that that just shows that, you know, as, as the bigger the price tag gets, the further away we're moving away from, you know, the races that brought us into yeah. the sport in the first place. So uh, uh, before I ask Neil what, what his view is, because actually he's the one person who actually understands um, people being attracted to things that look good and also to uh, getting a hold of younger audiences. I have no idea about how that works. If I did, I wouldn't be lost in television. Um, I, I often equate F1 to being like the 911. When a new 911 comes out, everyone whinges about how the old 911 was better. It, oh, it's air-cooled. Oh, I prefer air-cooled. Oh, it's water-cooled. Oh, it's got hydraulic power steering. And, and I think Formula 1 fans could be accused of being a bit like that. But whenever something new comes along, we bemoan the fact that the current racing isn't as good. I go back and watch races from the mid-80s, which is supposed to be the, the plum period of Senna and everything else. And it, there's, about, there's about one overtake every race. It's yeah. utterly mm -hmm. woeful. So we do view all this stuff through rose-tinted spectacles. And I, I just get the sense at the moment that even though F1's moving in a direction that I'm not necessarily always a fan of, <clears> they're making it, they're, they're doing a pretty damn good job for their own business. They yeah. are. Thoughts? Well, I th if you the more you think about it, the more 20 billion quid is cheap, right? Yeah. If Chelsea's worth 4 billion, football club, Man United's worth 6 billion, I mean, yeah. 20 billion for the whole sport, the only... <laughs> global sport that travels around the world and yeah. talks to billions of people i mean frankly it's unique isn't it so i think cvc probably sold it too early it probably is 20 billion quid yeah you, you Neil, could you buy it for us please <laughs> hmm? could you buy it for us please well look if you've got money coming out of the ground for free it's probably quite a bargain right yeah <laughs> i i was gonna i i'm without naming who but somebody that i did meet in the middle east said that um they'd done their homework on the, the valuation and um originally they'd looked at it in the kind of um early 2000 and i think it was 2012 and um it had an informal 10 billion price tag on it then. And they did their analysis and they went, no, 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 no. This is way too much money. And uh, this person said to me, we let, we let it go and we wish we hadn't. And they right. were looking at numbers where they were saying, I think with the right development now, 30, because, it, because of exactly <clears throat> what you say, Neil, it's entirely unique. And all I would say about CVC is I think they rode the tiger as much as they possibly could. Because I think if you have Bernie running it, you know, I'm not going to plug mm. my show yet again. But <laughs> the, the point is, what that shows I, that? I think those last 10 years, kind of, you know, spy gate, sex gate, crash gate, trial one, trial two. You know, you're just a hedge fund. Mm. I just want to go to work in Mayfair and, and sit in this cubicle and make a few phone calls. I really don't fancy, you know, going to the high court or whatever. I, I think they held on to it just long enough they made plenty of money and i think now media mm, professionals mm. have got the show they know what they want to do with it they own live nation so you can see what singapore did with formula one it turned yeah the, turned the thing into a three-day event you know with concerts and all the rest of it these guys aren't dumb they've added all of that yeah taking it to america i'm just a little bit less optimistic about and maybe you know maybe that's just me i'm being an old 9-11 fan 
I'm a little bit less optimistic about ultimate US TV numbers. I'm not so sure about it. I think it's a really, you know, if they get a load of American drivers in, maybe, but I, I you know, we used to watch IndyCar back in the day. And one of the reasons, I, I know there were lots of political issues with it, but the truth was, you know, they had a few good American drivers. And once it started getting dominated by kind of ex-Formula One Brazilians and Colombians, you know, I thought the viewing figures started to um, to tank a bit. But. Well, um, let's move on to uh, rumours uh, coming out of uh, the F1 world that, that Ford and Red Bull are about to become conjoined. Personally, I think it's a fantastic idea. I think we all know that there had been a conversation between Red Bull and Porsche that didn't end uh, the way either party wanted. Um, and it would seem that the idea of, of Red Bull becoming like Ferrari, the, you know, a manufacturer of the, of the complete car, might not be the best thing for anyone. Perhaps only Ferrari can deal with that. And perhaps the reason why Ferrari doesn't succeed is because it's got too much on its plate, uh, trying to do powertrain and chassis as well. So thoughts, I think it's potentially a great match. Well, it looks like... And clearly, something's going to happen. Aren't they? Aren't the uh, Alpha Tauri and Red Bull launches taking place in New York or somewhere in the they US? They are. It's on the third. Yeah. Yeah. Why would that happen? The Porsche thing with Red Bull was really interesting because, particularly, the obviousness of the way it fell out. What I can't understand is how Red Bull got as far as they did. Who said, "Oh, hang on. So that involves them owning part of us. Oh, we don't want that. We're Red Bull. We don't do it." Thinking, well, why did you think they were there? They didn't want to be. You think. Did nobody check that bit of, was that at the bottom of the memo? Did you not read it? Did, that was on page two. Yeah, there was two pages that. Do- so that that sort of feels really, really weird how they got that far. Because I do think that part of what makes Red Bull interesting is, the, is, is their independence. Now that Dietrich has gone, I wonder what difference. I don't think you managed to get your view on that in terms of how, where the power is shifting and does Helmet have a different view? Uh, I kind of like whatever you think of Red Bull and how they go about their business and culture and the, the character. Uh, and, you know, we'll come back to Christian, I'm sure, because he's such an interesting character. But I can't interested to see what what they're going to get that they don't currently have. I don't know. Manish, what do you think? Um, I'm sure it's going to happen. No, that, that's my gut feeling. And I think you're exactly right about the the Porsche Red Bull relationship. It slightly reminded me of the Williams BMW relationship yeah. back mm. in the day. You get a privateer like Frank, who's basically, you know, as I said, you know, he's, he's been a buccaneer all his life and he has to marry a corporate and it just must have been hell. Yeah. Can I interrupt Having, there? So can I interrupt there? And can, is it apocryphal or is it true that the day he signed the deal, he had a Spitfire buzz the factory at Grove? Is that true? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I, I, let's I've say heard, it is. I've heard brilliant. it so many times, and I'm not. I'm not trying to be litigious here, but I've heard that he signed the <laughs> deal and a spit, a supermarine Spitfire, <laughs> not a Triumph, flew over the factory just to remind the Germans of where Frank stood on the subject. <laughs> Did he have a little cardboard cutout of Douglas Bader telling a story at that girls' school about? Sorry, manager, I interrupted there. Carry on, but it seemed like the right time to say that. That's a brilliant interruption. I, I just, um, so like, it's a cultural thing, isn't it? And I think that Red Bull, in some ways, are the team that is closest to the old Williams, weirdly. They've got yeah. this, you know, they are Red Bull. And if you want to come and play with us, we've been doing this a long time. We're very good at what we do and we like winning. And I, 
I, I totally agree with Chris. I just that marriage with Portia just seemed like an absolute marriage from hell. Both sides wanting exactly the same piece of turf, yeah. mm -hmm. and you can just mm -hmm. see the arguments. Whereas with Ford, you do get a sense that um, you know they've got a great great history. They've got a better history, obviously, as an engine manufacturer than as Stuart, which was kind of the Stuart Fordy straight Jaguary thing. And you've already talked about Eddie Irvine being the highest paid kind of Ford employee, and you know, so they're going in understanding that they're going to build a fantastic engine, and they may build the whole powertrain, and that's all great. But Red Bull and Adrian Newey are going to build this beautiful, slippery car. And um, and that relationship is going to work. And Ford don't need to own a chunk of Red Bull. And, you know, the opposite's impossible. So I could see that marriage working beautifully. And then the, the second point about the passing of Dietrich Mateschitz, there's no doubt that that man was just a Formula One great. And in fact, Bernie said, really, he put him in the same breath as Enzo, Enzo Ferrari. Mm you know, in his last days. I mean, he thought that highly of him in terms of what he had done for Formula One. Wow. Uh, but I think that momentum is there. I really do think that momentum's there. And I think it should see them through this next, this next marriage, this next period. And then we just have to see where Formula One is going. Yeah. I think Ford back in F1 would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a great 100%. brand. It's a I mean, brand that of looks... people. <clears throat> um, yeah. Mega That's history. Awesome. Jim Farley's clearly a dude. He gets it. Um I think it'd be bloody fantastic. Yeah. Apart from the fact, the only thing I really care about is Lewis winning eight. Obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what? I think you might be in with a shout. I, I, last year, I put 50 quid on Lewis winning. That was a good 50 quid. I'm going to do the same again this year. I think if they give him a car that's within a sniff, yeah. he'll have a go. I'm not sure whether he, he will have the car, but, but let's see. I think the one thing I'd add to the Red Bull situation is they are... I agree with everything Manish said about their buccaneer spirit, about them being a team that just does it a different way. You know, when you go to a Formula One race, all the other teams in the build-up on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning when they're about to go into the race are doing their thing. There's there's like dance music blaring out of Red Bull's yeah. but It has a very different vibe about it to any other team. It really does. Um, but the blame culture. I, I watched a clip the other day of when when uh, the split between Renault and Red Bull had been announced and someone from F1, a well-known journalist, is going to, going to uh, the team principal, um, what will you miss about Renault? And Mr Horner just pauses and goes, yeah. He doesn't say anything. That, you know, that's a commercial relationship that lasted for so long, all that success, and he didn't have it in him to say that all the championships we won, he just looked at the camera and said nothing. And the tyres, you know, that... Red Bull blamed Pirelli more vociferously than any other, any other company or Formula One team. There, there is, if, if you work with Red Bull and you don't deliver the absolute apex of performance, you're going to be shit-canned. And you're going to be shit-canned by a, a team that has the best communication strategy of any, potentially any sport in the world. So the potential yeah. brand damage that comes of not getting it right with Red Bull is terrifying. Yeah. Mm. They're sort of the, the mill wall, really, of the planet, aren't they? Everybody hates us <laughs> and we don't care. <laughs> Liverpool. Jesus Christ, you can have that lawsuit when it comes in, Mr. Skipper. Right. Uh, <laughs> moving, moving on. So, um, I've got uh, a little, a little semi-weekly uh, feature that might happen now and again. It might burp regularly, it might not. We imagined our 25 grand car last week. We're going to put an imaginary human being into this now. So, Edward's gone for a comfort break, means we can actually have, we can have some sensible chat now. Um, so, I want all of you, and I might have already given you this information, to imagine 
the perfect two-car garage for a 42-year-old vet, male of the species, married, two kids, lives in rural Yorkshire. Okay, did I mention he's a vet? I did. There you go. I think you did. Okay, so two-car garage. By the way, I'm doing mine on the hoof. You would have researched yours. I'm going I'm to I'm start thinking about mine now. Over to you, Neil Clifford. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right, I know this guy very well. <laughs> I imagined him. I imagined him this morning. He is uh, actually, I always see things through a 90s lens, which is a bit weird. Maybe that's, that's my interesting. Yeah, I did back. 80s. So he's got a V8 Series 1 Discovery. Yes. Two-door. Yeah. Maybe one would say three-door. Cloth, manual, manual gearbox. Jasper Connell special. on classic and, um, classic and car or car and classic, whatever it's called. I've done the search this morning. V8, three-door, Disco 1, very Alan Clark, manual. And then as his second car, because he never wanted to be a vet, actually. He was bullied into it by his dad. Right? He wanted to be an architect. He wanted to live in the Barbican. You know, he wanted to wear Margaret Howe baggy suits. So, obviously, he has a Saab. He has a Saab T16 900S Cabriolet yeah. for the kids. Because he was forced to have children as well. Um, Black, obviously, because they only bloody come in black when he looked to buy one with the tan leather. And the most important bit about that car is it's got that night mode. Do you ever remember? Yes. Where you can switch just... <laughs> turn the dashboard off. Turn the dashboard off apart from the Speedo. So you're driving yeah. a jet Yeah. across the Yorkshire Moor. Yeah. So that's what you would have. Oh, God, I'm going to be shit at this. Neil, that was legendary. <laughs> Although Chris did say they had to be wealthy. Your your man sounds sort of half broke. But no, 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 no. He's wealthy, wealthy but angry. This is shabby chic. This is shabby chic. His Yorkshire. parents own a large chunk of Gloucestershire. He chooses these cars for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So it's Yorkshire. So interestingly, I did, I got an 80s take on it. I actually know this guy. I know you think you know him. I do know him. Uh, his name is Nelson Rowe. Uh, mm. I used to race against him. He so he's a very very key. He his family got an equine vet practice, Gloucestershire, not quite Yorkshire. Um, but he wanted to be a racing driver, and I he won various Caton championships. I think he was in Formula Ford. He's won a couple of 
classic Formula Four championships. He was in that very famous incident at Cabell a few years ago where his car turned over, caught fire, and two guys came out of the crowd to turn it over uh, upright. So a 1980s version of Nelson would have had, because he's a, he's a vet in Yorkshire. Yorkshire is farming country. Farming is big animals. So he's going to spend most of his time with his hand up the backside of some animal. So he's going to need somewhere to put lots of bio waste and all those long gloves and stuff. So I think it had a 1982 Subaru Brat. It was that Subaru oh. pickup yeah. that had frameless doors, like a sports yeah. car. Uh, I, I worked on a farm in my college holidays in the 80s, and the farmer had one of those. What a machine. Mm. Flat four engine, didn't sound like a Beetle, sounds like a baby Porsche. Such a nice gearbox, such nice steering. And you could put all of those gloves in the back. He'd have had one of those. And I like to think he'd have had a late 70s Triumph 2.5 PI estate, dark blue. Oh, 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 oh. Manual yes. gearbox. Yes. Such a cool car. And in Yorkshire, it would have fitted in. It's not too much. Nice on the roads. Nice, beautiful engine. Straight six engine. Fantastic Probably, dashboard. Uh, beautiful dashboard. I grew up in Kent and the guy who lived near us had one. I just thought if you had one of those, you'd have everything. So the 80s version of, of Neil's guy would have had I think it's called Subaru Brat or a Bumby or something. It's uh, it was a Brat, of... and it was also a Tamiya model, which was based on the same chassis yeah. that knows as the Frog. It's like it's <laughs> like a sort of a Japanese version of an El Camino, something like that. That same sort of like sort of B pillar yeah. look. Um, that's what he'd had. Okay, right, Manish. I would imagine that this was the first ever Indian vet in 1976 <laughs> in Yorkshire. <laughs> And basically, it's my dad, but as a vet, not a doctor. And so what he's going to do is he's got to be the key thing about turning up in Yorkshire. And he doesn't drink pints. He only drinks whiskey. The, um, the key thing is to be more British than British. <laughs> and these are the two cars he would have. His utility vehicle, I think, would be a 1976 three-door Range Rover in mm -hmm. a kind of mustard because that oh, would match yeah. his Bahama gold, Bahama beige. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So he would have basically some form of brown jacket on, some form of brown shirt, some form of mustard tie, and a different brown pair of trousers and green wellies. I could see him in that. Plenty of room for the bovine gloves. And his, and his posh car would be a Daimler double six Vanden Plaa. And I think it would be in Ooh. Bollywood white with um with red leather inside and i think that's the car you would drive on a sunday that that would be my indian vet 1976 i love it edward dr patel i i, I just don't have that i i need to think more about this for next week but um i i, I yo-yoed between modern and old but i i've gone with my grandmother lives on the edge of the yorkshire moors uh, on the on right where the rally stages were so i was thinking he's, he's going to want some sort of car that he's seen running through the uh, the moors so in um delta integrale evo 2 Ooh. martini edition as, as his weekend car because he's got two kids so you know we've got to have something where he can get the kids in the back and then for a modern car he's still well for a family car with a bit of a boot so he can put some dogs in the back or whatever a sheep on the way to the vets i've given him an rs2 avant 
Um, to, to, keep it, to keep it old, rather than... I could have given him an RS6, but there would have been chunder all over the seat, slobber well, coming back down the nap leather. I think you can forgive that in an RS2, but in an RS6, you probably yeah. can't. Terrible, I know. I, I could have also just given him a Land Cruiser. You've um, you've undone me there, love it, because we should have we should have agreed. We've we've not crossed wires completely. I've, I've gone to the same brand, but I've got a different vehicle. So there was a suggestion of old money here as well. For me, old money always shies away from buying new vehicles. They always tend to buy something a bit used. They want that slightly ratty look. They're also inherently me, so they don't want to waste the cash. So I've gone a B8 RS4, which is the V8 RS4. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, I, and I often, I often when I do these things in my head, when I'm walking on my own, I'm trying to ignore people and I've got headphones on that are not playing any music. If you see me out the about, my headphones are on. I'm just doing that so I don't have to talk to people. Um, mm -hmm. I've got my headphones on. I'm, I'm thinking about these things in my head. This is the, these are the matters that of I course. deal with. These are, these are important to me. And also, these are cars that I want to buy. I want a B8 RS4. I just can't bring myself to buy one. I don't know why. They're not that expensive, but it's like I don't deserve it. But this man is driving around, because he's got a bit of a character. He's driving around in the Nagaro Blue RS4. It's debadged, but it's got clear glass. Yeah, that's important. yeah, yeah. yeah. Clear, glass yeah. Is it's got clear glass. Clear glass, okay? And that's his daily. It's done a lot of mileage, and he doesn't like the ride comfort too much, but there's something about the fact that he feels like he's got an 80 grand car for £23,000, and he's really happy with it. His other car is a bit of a family heirloom. It came, it, I'm not quite sure how it came to him, whether he bought it or it sort of percolated down through the wealth spectrum. But he's got a 1985 911 3.2 cab with no wing. It's in dark Ooh. green. And it's got the most important thing for me. It's got the big sports seats with the big bolsters that come right up against your yeah. moves. Yeah. Those ones. It's got those. Yeah. So yeah. those are the two cars for me. I think our vet would drive. I really enjoy doing this. I'm going to be doing this all blimmin' week. But I have to say, for me, the, the, the surprise, I'm going to call the surprise of the bunch. It's the Conran Interior three-door Evo 1, or well, Stage 1 Discovery V8. That was, I remember a friend of mine's dad had one of those. I remember doing 110 miles an hour down the auto route to Soleil in that thing. Couldn't believe how cool it was, because it sounded like a NASCAR from the inside yeah. with that V8, didn't it? Impossible yeah. to find as well. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, no, they're no. It, it harks back to Alan Clark driving all the way from Kent to Scotland on one tank. Clearly, you couldn't. His was a diesel five door. He was like, massive. He always remember him talking talking about the diesel engine and how mm. Britain ruled the world. It was the one product we made that was better than anything else. He was correct, and also he was a great exponent. And I have to say, I, I do agree with him. Of when you're cruising in bad weather in a car like that, you're above. And he said, "I'm I'm tired of looking at the axle cases." of HGVs. Remember that phrase? The axle cases of HGVs. Yeah. I mean, right. it's the, the only book I've ever read. And is it? I've read it about a hundred times. Well, the Backfire and, book? Uh, mm? The Backfire book or the diary? Yes, Backfire, yeah. Yeah. And he says, I mean, I think it's, maybe we talk about this on another chat, it had the best dashboard ever made. So I think best dashboards is probably one to talk That's about. That's a good one. Yeah, That's best dashboards. So for this 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 vet, just because we've all gone interesting, because we haven't discussed this between ourselves at all. Um, I did think about modern and kind of the obvious thing for a, a vet in rural Yorkshire is, one that we think is is comfortably wealthy. Would they go for an Ineos Grenadier? What do we think? Mm. I think yeah, they might. I think they would. I'm really intrigued. I have one coming in, in February. Yeah, you've got one. I'm really intrigued to see what you think. Mm. What's the engine in a Grenadier? It's a BMW 6 cylinder petrol diesel. diesel. Or petrol. Nice engine. Is it? So what do you get? 300 horsepower? Three, you get three diff locks. And who doesn't like three diff locks? 
<laughs> I've no uh, idea. I went petrol. Did you? You went petrol, and you see it could be diesel. What, what, what does it come out at? Is it a ninety thousand pound car? No, is it no, 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 no. Neil's probably will be. No, I, I was in early, so I got the. I, it was the, they priced it differently if you took an early order. So mine's, I think, sixty grand. Okay, I, I'm I'm very interested. I, I'm hopefully going to get a chance to drive one. But you're right. The the, the the idea that I suppose one of the great fallacies of British life when you go to America and they they assume that every farmer drives around in a Defender and you have to explain to them they've all got Isuzus because Defenders yeah. are fairly useless as agricultural vehicles. It's totally shattering. It'd be like them coming to London and not seeing any black cabs. They'd be mortified. Yeah. But uh, but it's it, sadly the stereotype doesn't quite fit. Right, moving on. McLaren is a car company that. Is in, is, seems to always be in a state of flux. It's become the sort of new Aston Martin of our world. I, I love what they did back in 2010. I have huge admiration for what Ron Dennis achieved. And he, within five, six years, established a car company that was making vehicles that were just as good as Ferraris. That that mm. rarely happens. You know, you don't you don't launch a new Coca-Cola and take on the original. It just doesn't happen. I, I, I can't name another instance when that's happened in my adult life, in any, any walk of life. But there's one car of theirs. I don't know if we've had an experience of it called the 675 LT. And the more I look at the direction that these cars are going down, I think the 675 LT could become a very, very valuable car. I think it's I think it's fantastic to drive and it embodies everything that was great about McLaren in 2004-5. Discuss. It needs to be CSL spec, coupe, scoops and louvers. I owned the best one. You I did. You did. One. And on, my, my son is it's the only car my son is pissed off that I sold. It was XP green, so it was the is the green from the F1. It's still actually on the bloody Bramley Motors website, which pisses me off even more. Um, <laughs> scoops, the scoop saloon, green MSO, silver wheels, the whole bloody thing. I lost my shirt on it actually. Um, I lost. Would you like to lose it again? It. Say again. It. Say again, Ed. No, no, sorry, that that was Chris. Oh, sorry. No, it was. uh, But to be honest, it's a fantastic car. It's the prettiest ever McLaren. I think you could argue, maybe twelve C was the the original iPhone, but it's a baby P one, super pretty. Yeah. Um, it's sort of Griffith before the Chimera, whatever it's called, when the seven twenty has become my dog ate my car, looking shit. I always watch that Chris on cars video of Silverstone red one in the red one I love that red one I've been looking for one of those and I think your reference point Chris which was it's just a hundred little extra bits that took it to beyond the 650 which is like what the 2.7 RS did from the 2.4 S it's a magnificent car the best driving positions the best bloody dashboard that shitty sat nav iris bloody thing was terrible It always felt like it was going to fall to pieces a little bit, unfortunately. I stupidly sold it. I lost a load of money. Uh, but I think it probably is peak McLaren. Yeah. Would you have another one? That one only. Okay. It's interesting. Um, you can't, you can't buy a shittier house in the same village, can you? <laughs> You'd have to be that. Unfortunately, have to be that one, wouldn't it? But yeah, I would. You 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 compared it, Chris, to the two point seven RS of its time. Yeah, I think I yeah, think when we look true. back when we look back at a car company's um, peak period of operation, and I I think you, you'd have to argue that McLaren's very best days might be behind it at the moment. Not to say they can't happen again, 
But, you know, it, it just, it was a rat-a-tat-tat of new product every five yeah. years. But one car stood out for me. I mean, the P1 is an exceptional motor vehicle, but I have a problem with anything with batteries in it, as does anyone that wants to buy one. So you're right, it's a P1 without the batteries in many ways. Mm. But it was also a car, I, I knew, maybe I knew a bit too much about um, about the way that these cars have been developed. But I remember my friends that worked in my town went, watch out for this one. We've really gone to town with this. We've done some work on this that we weren't allowed to do before, which means we're releasing some of the potential from this carbon tub, from the engine. And when you drive it, they said, do you know what? We're almost worried. We're so far ahead of the opposition. If you want the equivalent car back then was a 458 spec Charlie. And they said, if you honestly want to do a track test between the two, which is what magazines do and you want to do lap times, I feel they felt sorry for the Ferrari. They said, it's, you know, if, if you're going to judge this empirically, it won't be a sort of second and a half. It'll be five seconds. And they were right. I mean, you could argue that obviously the 458 Charlie is an even greater car and it's normally aspirated, yada, yada. But I think that the McLaren didn't just come out of the blocks and say, we can match Ferrari. They suddenly went, we're, we're a generation ahead of you. Yeah. As so these can... cars move out of their sort of warranty periods, these more modern cars, which are, which are and still were and still are exceptional, I, I do think there's always an overhang with the fear of what if you know, the window regulator stops working, the air conditioning stop working, the, the ceramic brakes, mm. you have a crack and a ceramic brake, etc. You know, and all of a sudden it's five grand here, 10 grand there. You know, it's not a it's not a restoration project. They're, you know, hugely expensive parts to keep them going, which I see it. I really think it plays on the minds of current owners and potential owners when considering owning them. Uh, and Chris, would you... Would you have one of those over a 600 LT or a 765? I think, I mean, the 765 is a different price proposition. Um, I definitely have it over a 600 LT because the 600 LT is a lovely car, but it, it feels, it feels baby brother to me. It feels yeah. like you've bought, it feels like you've bought the third growth rather than the grand yeah. premier crew. You know, it just, just hasn't got the same kick to it. Sometimes, and this is, I, I think we can all understand, when you're in the presence of the real deal, you don't even need to turn it on sometimes. You just sit yeah. there and go, oh, this is the uh, this is the 2.8 RSR. I know I'm in the presence of greatness here. It sounds terribly glib of me to say it, but in the 675, just the approach, the way the door opens, the way everything operates, you just get in and go, yeah, yeah this yeah. is spectacular. Um, and I, I do believe it's their 2.7 RS moment. Um, any other business? I've got one other thing to add. This came up in a WhatsApp conversation. I think, can we share a single memory on this day, this was recorded that Boeing announced it handed over, handed over the final 747 or jumbo jet, as we used oh. to call it in this country. Um, I don't know how many times I've flown on those old girls, but but as a piece of engineering, and we're brought together through engineering here, really, let's just share one story of why that is arguably the greatest man-made object. Manish, yours is going to be far more romantic, but we have a small WhatsApp group amongst us. So my memory is quite arrogant, but it will make you laugh. We woke up this morning to some Instagram posts of someone in the automotive industry, which we all chuckled at. I was on a British Airways Boeing 747 returning from uh, San Francisco to London I was very fortunate. I was sat up the stairs um, and this person came onto the plane and decided he wanted to come and introduce himself to me. And just up here, there's a little mm -hmm. button 
in British Airways that ejects or erects a glass screen. That was the only time I've been face to face with this person and he got greeted by the screen. <laughs> That's my 747 memory. Um, you you lot will do a lot better than that. <laughs> my mum used to drive me from Portsmouth to Heathrow in 1976 in a Ford Escort Mark One with my aircraft markings book, and I would and I would spend all day genuinely at Heathrow looking at and uh, marking them off in my book. And for me, the 747, maybe you could argue Concorde, is sort of it is sort of one of the most beautiful things ever. I always remember going in one for the first time, obviously in cattle class to San Francisco with my wife when we went traveling for two years, stuck at the back. And then being able to, what, 15 years later, go to 64K, the best seat upstairs. And being achieving that is one of my biggest achievements in life, getting to go upstairs to 747, basically. So I mean, you what, must... a, what a beautiful thing. I must have been 1976. That was the Queen's Building, wasn't it? Heathrow. Yeah, yeah. You used to, I think it was Terminal Two now, whatever. It's yeah, it's gone now. To, it's all gone. Yeah, I used to go upstairs um, there and sit there all day. I don't know where my mum. I think she went to Bingo in yeah Slough um, or somewhere. My father used to drive me there that summer in a Fiat One Two Six. Oh, where would you live? Uh, we lived in Kent, so it was a bit of a journey, and we stood like so, and you. It was such an amazing, it's, it's the least inanimate. Everything else, they're all now a long tube, two big engines from General Electric or Rolls-Royce. They're all the same. And I did a lot of traveling to Asia the second half of last year. And you think, is that a 787 or is it an A350? Who cares? They're just all the same. It just had a personality. And I know it's an overused phrase, but it's different. Concorde could hardly have been said to have democratized travel but nothing stirs you like standing at the edge or the perimeter when it took off in the evening for new york and those four big orange balls of afterburn you think how does that even work i mean the 747 sp yeah yeah it I just went, changed you got one of those i went on one of those i, went, um, I remember going on one of those i went i never air went mauritius had one air mauritius had one in the early 90s, I just marked me out as a bit of a wanker, but I went on an SP and my no. friend was sick all over my dad's lap. I remember that because the, <laughs> the, fish, the fish curry was off. Never <laughs> been on an SP, but that that's that's worth a Google if no one knows what that is. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful airplane. Yeah. You're yeah, go on, Manish. Go on, Manish. Oh, okay, so my, mine is a bit of a romantic memory and you won't believe it. Oh, I'm there we go. share it anyway. Um, I moved to England on June the 4th, 1972. And we flew over in a British Air BOAC 747 mm -hmm. from India, New Delhi Airport, to Heathrow. And I remember waking up in the morning and this very nice English lady, because my mum was, she had two of us. She had me and she had my sister on either side. And um, this very, very sweet older English woman put me on her lap in the morning. And it was the first time I'd ever eaten cornflakes. No. And that is my 747 memory. Wow. Very good. So I can Bowie. remember I was um, I had a strange upbringing, uh, which I won't go into now. But I had a much older father who was uh, later in life, and he, he was just an accountant. But he, he had very bad arthritis, so he used to take us abroad whenever he could go somewhere hot because he struggled to move sometimes, and it was just good for him. Um, oh, that was either the best excuse ever to go on the holiday and again. And we were we were we were in a, somewhere far away in a, in the tropics, and um, 
I can remember being about five years old. And it was a raging storm. And this airport constituted a mud hut. It was one of those places where the boat that checked you in then put the bags on the plane afterwards, one of those. And it was, it was, there was just the lighting of the airport was night. And this 747 came in and it, it landed in, it landed in a load of water on the runway. And one of the tires exploded. It was mayhem. I've never seen anything like just the, I've never seen something so big come into land. And we were so close to it. And I was impressed by motor vehicles then. And I thought, oh God, there's another, there's another whole world of stuff that's much more impressive than cars. And I stood there as a kid, and it took ages for them to put, they put a new tire on this bloody thing while we were there. And um, and I I was just blown away by it. But of course, in the tropics, you've got these smells. And this is what, what got to mm. me. There was the smell of, of the water, of the warmth, of the cicadas chirping. And, you know, I'm not a novelist, but you know those smells. Yeah. But the moment you walked aboard a British Airways 747, you were hit with this citrus Smell thing that would be flowing through the cabin and there'd be a smiling face. And I, and I suppose for, for me, it's the sad romanticising of a, of a world that's now bygone. And maybe we were trying to remember the fact that we that anyone gave a shit about us in the world even then, less so now probably. But it was the epitome of Britishness, the idea that this thing would land in the middle of bloody nowhere. And it was a bit, it was a bit like a bit of Heathrow had landed. Yeah. And you walked into it. Beautiful. And you were hermetically sealed. You felt like you'd already got home, but you already yep. had 12 hours to fly. And it's what made British Airways maybe a great airline back then. Maybe the re- some of the reasons why some of us struggle with it now. But but it, isn't it amazing? I don't have a, none of us have a story like that about a triple seven. I don't have a story about that. No. About I don't have a story about about an Airbus or something. Or a three eighty even. No. 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 It was a, it, really Chris is right. It was it, it's a ve- it's a vehicle with anthropomorphic qualities. Um, and on that note, that soppy note, um, please contribute on the comments below. Give us your favourite gear changes. Tell us why you think the 675 is shit. Tell us why you think I should cut my beard. All these things. This is interactive. I want to say thank you to uh, my usual uh, co-hosts here, Edward Lovett, Chris Cooper, Manish Pandey and Neil Clifford. And um, I want to wish you a very, very good week. And please tune in next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.